What's up, my friend? It is Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. Let's do it. Today is a self-improvement sit-down. In these self-improvement sit-down interviews, I speak with incredible people who are experts at their craft, and I have them share the lessons they've learned and the knowledge they've acquired along the way. We covered topics that can't be fully appreciated in only two minutes, which is the normal weekday version of the podcast, so be sure to subscribe if you need a little more personal development in your life every single day. It really is a treat that we get a glimpse into how best-selling authors, world changers, and incredible leaders operate so that we can apply the principles we learn to ourselves. I've been talking enough about it, let's get into it. This is Self-Improvement Sit-Down number 56 with Matthew Zachary. Hey there, so before getting started, I wanna let you know that there's a good amount of explicit language in this episode. Just wanted to let you know in case you're in a situation where that's not appropriate, or if you personally don't wanna expose yourself to that type of language. Thanks, time for the interview. And we are live. Today's guest is a man on a mission. His name is Matthew Zachary. Matthew is a sought after speaker who tells it how it is. And that's because he has an incredible story to tell. His work has been featured in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, on NBC News, on MTV. The list goes on for what is probably his greatest contribution to date, founding the stupid cancer movement where he created a home for individuals who had a positive cancer diagnosis at a young age. Matthew himself beat brain cancer at 21 years old and has been a leader in the patient advocacy space ever since. He's inspired people from all walks of life, and you are next on the list. Matthew, thank you for speaking with me today. Did you write that because you're hired? Yeah, I write, I write everything, man. I do it all myself. Very I impressive. Promise. You're definitely you're, you're on the team now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm open for I'm looking for a position. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Cool. I mean, even right there, right? You're known for someone who's um, just kind of like unapologetically yourself, right? Like that's something that you've embraced. And, you know, it's, it's just the way that you go about doing things. And Stupid Cancer was a huge community that was kind of built on that, just telling it how it is and really resonating with people at the level that they exist at. So, you know, there's that that you have going on, but then now you've moved into off script media, which kind of does the same thing to invite raw and difficult conversations in the name of advocacy and education. So I'm just curious to know because it, it is who you are, but there's a fine line between like being respectful and politically correct and then giving people the truth that they need to hear. So how have you navigated that in your career? I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm not quite a fuck your feelings guy. I totally respect how society is supposed to advance and supposed to grow and supposed to change. And you learn from the past on what not to do now, right? You, 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 ha- you need the past to reference what not to do. So let's not forget the past. Let's acknowledge the past. But at this point, you know, 47 years old, I kind of have no fucks left to give. And having been jaded and grown up in the 2000s in business, which was a totally different universe, uh, there's a certain perspective I have about where unapologetic sort of meets respectful. Mm. And it's okay to call shit out as long as you are maybe not as diplomatic as you may see other people being. But there's a certain level of refreshment that people are still able to carry this forward. And, you know, I've always been this way. Just someone stuck a mic in front of me in 2007 and I haven't stopped. (laughs) 
That's true. No, I, you, you bring up a good point, which is like, there's an authenticity to just calling it how it is. Like no one's going to try and guess what your intentions are. Your intentions are very clear because they kind of are disruptive and violate the, you know, the norm or the expected way of speaking, you know? So there's, there's that association with it. So not only, you know, sure, there might be that like barrier to overcome in terms of the political correctedness, but larger than that, the more important point, which you're touching on is people actually believe what you have to say, you know, and there's, there's that extra level of quality to what you're speaking because it, you have no regard for that political correctness. However, you know, that's not to say that there isn't a level of sensitivity that's required on certain topics, right? So No, and, and honestly, like, maybe there's like a nexus where Gen Xers can't say the word woke anymore because like our, our <laughs> post-generation, like you, like own that word. <laughs> you know, we used to say things like retarded and we know that's not a good word anymore. So like, yes, we are adapting to society. I don't say that word anymore. I've learned to say bonkers and bananas like you people do. Like, I'm OK with that. It's yeah. part of the narrative. So, yeah, there's, there's a level of wokeness that we have to have. You cannot ignore that. And to say the 80s were fantastic. Yeah, if you're white middle class in New York City. Sure. I can say that too with a little asterisk. Right. But this notion of trying to sugarcoat shit for the sake of other people's feelings, we come from a generation where there were only five channels on television. And if you didn't like what was on TV, you shut it off. And that's the way you have to think of media these days, because you're just so damn saturated. If you don't like it, haters going to hate. Go fuck yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Turn it off and don't read the comments like Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, what is it? Wreck-It Ralph breaks the Internet style. Don't read the comments. <laughs> You, you brought up kind of the current culture of social media. I'm curious to get your take on this because it, it's true. You know, a lot of, you know, our, our woke generation, right? You know, we talk a lot about how social media becomes an echo chamber and how you really get to find evidence for what you choose to believe. And, you know, even the algorithm starts curating content that just deepens your identity versus allows you to open up your perspective and, and challenge it, you know, based on how you've seen media, you know, evolve over the last couple of decades. Like, what's your comment on kind of the effects that that's going to have as it relates to, you know, our belief systems, identities, and the general ethos of the way we interact with each other? I think it's human nature to have confirmation bias. It just wasn't at the rapid scale it is today in mm. 2021. Look what Hitler did, you know, uh, you know, mobilizing millions of Germans to believe certain things with confirmation bias. There was no internet. There was barely toilets back then. So it's possible to do it again, but now we're at this digital scale where it's impossible to weave out what is and what isn't truth. And you can only say, read a newspaper, people, but the newspaper could be biased. And where do you get your sources from? Is there a source? Like, how do you, you can't backtrack. So yeah. I look at like talk radio. Talk radio can be the most influential gift to society or the worst influential gift to society. And how do people find a way to filter through what matters to them, ideally for positive gain in the world. Back in the 2000s, everything we did was irreplicable by today's standards. There was no Facebook there. Google was still trying to convince us they weren't evil, right? <laughs> Facebook didn't exist yet. And we're using like AOL CDs to find people on chat groups. And it was ridiculous to think that we'd arrive at a space 20 years later where the cacophony just accelerates our human interest in this confirmation bias. It, it, the dopamine hits didn't hit back in the 2000s. Now they hit today where you just can't get away. You can't escape from the information that gets pounded to you. I'm ranting here, but your algorithm buddies, right? Like the algorithms are there to make money and not to give a shit about what they're telling you. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's an unfortunate space that we find ourselves in. And I'm glad that there's, you know, it is a very front of mind conversation, which is what's the capitalistic reasons for this? What's best for humanity? How do we meet halfway? You know, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of noise, as you mentioned, there's a lot of noise kind of in this space. And, you know, I'm not the one that's kind of positioned to solve it, but I'm definitely supportive of those who are coming upon the the latest uh, ideas to progress through it. So as everyone can already hear, you've got this, uh, how do I put it? There's, there's nothing to lose mentality, right? Like you kind of, you very much are yourself and, you know, you just kind of go for it as you see fit. Um, and I'm sure your cancer diagnosis has some kind of influence in that, you know, it gave you the courage to speak more honestly because, you know, you had a face off with your mortality, you know, you, you had this dance with the devil, so to speak. Um, so I guess that's kind of one of the things that's changed since, you know, you were in your early twenties and that cancer diagnosis, but what else have you noticed in your life that you have a new perspective on since kind of coming through that experience? It's rare to say this, but I really mean it. I don't fear death. I just don't. And as much as I have beautiful 11 year old twins, that would be tragic if I died tomorrow. I don't fear it. I'm not afraid of talking about it. And it's not like, oh, live every day like you're dying. What's that? That Tim McGraw song, whatever it was. Yep. But it's trying to have some kind of forced perspective mentally, not a, you know, where someone's big on one side of the room and someone's like, it's this idea that you can balance the stress and anxiety with things that actually anchor you to what you feel is a purpose. Like we're just blips and atoms in the universe, right? Your head can explode thinking about what is life? What is air? Like, what is this? There's no way to even wrap your head around consciousness and interdimensionality and all these syllables and acronyms that, you know, the <laughs> Sison talks about. So what is it that you want to accomplish with your life? What makes you most proud? What is that anchor for you? And I, I don't fear death. And that's kind of what drives me to be able to feel like I can take, not like skydiving crazy risks. I, I mean, I have, a, I have some mortality <laughs> to me at this point. I'm not going skydiving. But to the extent that I've just found a purpose where I feel like, you know, after been doing this for 20 years and it's very self-reinforcing despite, you know, failure, what is success is the failure that went right. I like that expression. You keep mm. failing up with style. And you know, at the end of the day, it, it just comes down to, at least for me, when I get up in the morning, it's okay to be stressed. It's okay to be angry, but I have a center point. You know, I'm very blessed to have these kids. I have a wonderful family and that's my anchor. And if I can get away with all this other crap on top of that, it's just the best life ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, you talking about kind of our existential nature, like there's something I've been thinking about recently. Um, you have a choice, either nothing matters because we're just one speck of whatever amongst a larger speck of whatever, either nothing matters or everything matters, you know, because there's nothing larger than you because you are one of those core units that contributes to the larger ecosystem, you know? So it's like, I see that kind of choice being a unique perspective in that you can become one of the people that like ends up take, making the most of the opportunities that you see for yourself versus feeling you know, the victim of how it could be, um, you know, relative to the large things that exist around you. And I, I love how you're talking about kind of the, the core purpose you have, right? Your anchor in the ground. It is, you've got, you know, first your family, your health, your, you know, your time, like, do you find that meaningful and then grow that into, 
kind of the larger, more external purposes. Because like I said, you're a man on a mission. Like it's not that you're just grateful within your own means. Like you are always pushing the boundary, trying to create more, trying to drive more impact and trying to be a larger influence in the name of good for this world. So there's gotta be a bigger nugget of purpose beyond just kind of like that, that small circle that you were describing. And I'm curious to know if, if that was somehow influenced by your, you know, cancer diagnosis and in recovery, or if that came from somewhere else where you just feel this need to continue, you know, driving change. Yeah. I I talk a lot about how a lot of people aren't born with moxie, you know, not everyone's a self-made advocate. You, you, You tend to become something you didn't expect to be when a bad thing happens to you or someone you love. And that's perfectly fine. It's often tragic and that's life and life is harsh. And I think Yogi Berra said, if life were easy, we'd all do it, which is a (laughs) phenomenal Yogi Berra quote. I like to believe that either things happen to people or people happen to things. And I was born this way. I was born with like this natural precociousness. I've run with it my entire life. It got me in a lot of trouble as a kid, Uh, behaviorally, intellectually, just getting through grade school and middle school were, were its own thing. I found music, which was an anchor and calmed me down. And I've been playing piano for, God, 40 almost 40 years at this point. So that's kind of where I find myself. I'm not athletic. I don't meditate. I don't I can't quiet my brain down unless I'm sitting in front of a piano. But this idea that why accept what is, if you have the passion and the interest and the capability of believing that what is doesn't have to be what is. Mm-hmm. That's where I fundamentally throw my stick in the ground. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, you, you mentioned like precociousness and just like having this young, youthful kind of spirit. And I think something I've really been trying to um, address and kind of facilitate within myself is curiosity. You know, I think curiosity is one of the most important qualities or characteristics that you can have when it comes to expansion, because you're open to learning, you're open to having your perspective molded and shifted and you're you're open to trying new things, right? So I think there you have a healthy dose and maybe maybe a beyond healthy dose of curiosity because um, because of the way that you interface with the world and 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 with your experiences that have kind of brought you to that space. So I, I think uh, I think there's definitely part of that in you. <laughs> Again, like I think curiosity also is you know analogous to chutzpah and moxie. Like you want to know things, and they're like, yeah, but we're gonna die. You're gonna you know be the smartest guy in the graveyard. I've heard that too. Like, but you know what? So what? (laughs) (laughs) And that's fine too. The pursuit of knowledge should be, you know, asterisk at the core of every human's self-interest. And if you don't go out of your little cave, you're missing 99% of the world. Mm. You know, if you don't travel to India or Malaysia, Dubai, Europe, you have to do these things if it's within your capacity to do them, to realize that it isn't about you, right? We live in a generation that kind of, it's very different than than years ago, but it's either me or we very polarized more than it's ever been before me or we. And this idea of exceptionalism, especially in this country and populism, and it's, it's ridiculous that this is where we've evolved to. And I'll be that Abe Simpson yelling at the cloud. It's the internet's fault. <laughs> oh, well, I can see it now. <laughs> I can see that image. Um, no, I love that. I love that you made kind of audacity analogous to curiosity because you know curiosity is the pursuit of knowledge but then can you take action on that one step further and actually like generate an understanding of how it's applied in practice you know so there's that's an interesting correlation i never really kind of put together that you just uh, highlighted so i appreciate that cool all right before moving on to um you know a final topic um i, I do want to kind of 
understand your reasoning behind one big decision you made in your life. And it again, comes back to kind of the earlier stages of your cancer diagnosis. I hope I have these details, right? If not, then correct me. Um, but during your recovery, you chose to not receive chemotherapy because you wanted to retain your ability to play piano. Um, and that's obviously a really difficult decision where you're deciding between your health and your passion, your quality of life. And I don't know, um, like what were some of the things that went through your mind when you, when you made that choice? Well, first and foremost, thank you for doing your homework. That's a lesser known sort of <laughs> Easter egg of my story is that I did say no to chemotherapy after radiation and surgery. It's a very long story, but in brief, this was in the nineties when there really wasn't a lot of attention paid to your quality of life. In fact, just a quick plug for the Cancer Mavericks, the documentary that we're releasing to the world now about the 50 year history of cancer survivorship. I was right in the middle in the nineties between 71 and 2021 that there really was very little attention paid to who you were as a person and more about who you were as a tumor. Mm. <laughs> so uh, doctors were not really trained with empathy, right? You got, you were lucky if you found a doctor that knew who your name was, right? It was just the way it was in the 1990s. It's still that way a little bit today, but it's definitely better. So I had, was given six months to live right before my surgery. I was alive six months later. And I said, when am I going to die? And they said, well, we'll give you a 50, 50 chance to live for five years. And if I knew then what I knew now, I would ask them, which of your asses did you pull that data out of? Because <laughs> They made it up on the spot. I, I, I found out they just made that shit up on the spot. And then, well, we want to give you chemotherapy. And like, well, what does that increase my odds to? And, and they were very jubilant in explaining to me that it would increase my odds by five more percent, which is three months on five years. But I had an uncle who was a genomicist at the time, my father's best friend, my uncle Jay. And he, he was like the Sherpa. He was the overseer, the watcher, the Marvel watcher of my entire experience. Very grateful to have that man in my life, even still today. But he demanded the doctors show him what their chemotherapy protocol was because they didn't tell me. It's just who knows what chemo means, right? It's just a word. It's like nine things in a, in a martini glass that gets in your veins. And one of the things I wanted to give me was a drug called Vincristin. Vincristin causes permanent neuropathy, which is uh, tingles in your fingers and toes forever. So my uncle... Jay's like, Matt, you'd rather die in five years than die in five years and three months with Vincristin because it means that you'll never be able to play piano again. And mm -hmm. even if that Vincristin worked and you lived till 80, you'll never play piano again for the rest of your life, let alone the next five years. What uncle tells his nephew that at 21 years old, that's when I figured out I would rather be whatever length of time I had left as a pianist then die without the piano. And I'm 21. Actually, I just turned 22 making that decision. And that was it. I had to do this on my terms. Wow. That's really powerful. And I think it, um, I think it ties actually back into the last point about curiosity where it's like, okay, why, like, why are you telling me this? What does this mean? What are the implications? Where is that based from? Like a lot of that story is predicated on the knowledge around your specific condition. And the fact that you had someone in your corner that was apt enough to help you understand the full context of it and understanding the, the trade-off of it, you know, making that difficult, but practical decision is uh, powerful. thank you for sharing. Um, but that was, uh, yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. Um, and glad obviously that everything worked out for the best and you beat all <laughs> odds, whatever those odds were at whatever point. <laughs> but I mean, the, the pay it forward here is how do you guarantee, how do you ensure that at any socioeconomic level, at any level of access, at any level of of, of, of gender, race that you identify as or are born into, you have a guaranteed right 
deny your choices and afford those choices. Who's got your back? I had Uncle Jay. Who's everyone's Uncle Jay? We don't have an Uncle Jay in this country writ large. There's no such thing as an Uncle Jay for every cancer patient, for every rare disease patient, for every mental health patient. It doesn't exist. And it's very regrettable. And if my hill to die on now isn't young adult cancer anymore, I will always love and be the founder of Super Cancer. It's a huge movement. I support it every day. But my hill to die on now is to guarantee to the extent that is possible in this ridiculously fucked up healthcare system that everyone has an Uncle Jay to help them make the decisions that are best for them, that they can afford and that they don't have to go through shit. It's all about the dignity. Mm -hmm. That's a hell of a mission. Like that is, and, and that is, that is going to help a lot of people. So thank you for, for that gift. Um, I, I love how you think because it really is just a, like a, a true expression of what you believe. And I think that's really refreshing, right? Um, and I think there's an element of kind of what I want to speak on last um, to it, which is um, it's more nuanced, but it's, um, it's the idea of disruption and how, you know, disruption violates you know what 90 percent of people believe to be true but that's maybe an indoctrination that might be you know um an education barrier you know who knows where disruption actually comes in the community but it's it's important for us to know that it is the mechanism of change if someone's got to do something different in order for things to be different so you know throughout your entire story you've been disruptive right like you rejected chemotherapy you've been speaking your mind and swearing on radio you've been you know you've been doing your thing and you have been disruptive so you know, what role, I already kind of gave you my opinion, so hopefully I didn't bias it, but what role do you think disruption plays in society and what role has it played in, in your life and your progression? So you start to look at how your life moves in the directions you never expected it to. I happened to be a Macintosh nerd in the 1990s. So that was my plan B was to like, if I went to Film school, I could always tinker and make some money fixing Macintoshes in the 1990s because they really sucked in the 1990s. But plan B became plan A when I went up living and I got a job at an advertising agency in the early 1990s. And that was what taught me about branding. Hmm. I knew nothing about it. I just, I love the Apple logo. That's all I knew about branding. And I spent a decade almost in the madman world on Madison Avenue, on you know Sixth Avenue, working at these these well known in the industry agencies, understanding brands, brand planning, how you launch a product, and I was kind of coached and guided. One of my dear mentors, Larry Starr, formerly of an agency called Harrison and Starr, which is now one of the largest agencies in the world in pharma. I said to him, like, I, I'm thinking of going into nonprofits. What can you teach me? And he gave me this book. And the book is called Disruption <laughs> by Jean-Marie Drew, the founder of TBWA Chiat Day. Lots of words, but they're one of the premier agencies in the world. I recommend everyone read the book Disruption by Jean-Marie. There's a sequel to it, too. And that book taught me about the psychology of delivering what he called the anti-expectation that most people just assume that they're going to be served up what's in their self-interest like an algorithm does. Now it's very robotic. It's very inhuman. But this idea of, and Steve Jobs kind of owned this philosophy too, is never give someone what they want. You deliver what they never knew they wanted or needed. And that's anti-expectation. So like a good example of that in the book is when Coke launched Diet Coke. It was the first company to launch their own competition. 
It was the opposite. Like, why would you do this to yourself? You have a perfect product. It's all over the world and you're launching competition for it. You're going to tank. And it worked. Totally worked. And one other one, which I'll, uh, you have to read the book to really dig into is when toilet paper became bathroom tissue. That's a great story to tell. What the hell is bathroom tissue? Okay, fine. I'm going to start buying bathroom tissue now. So cancer in the early 2000s was wristbands and ribbons and Hallmark cards and you pour thing and how are you feeling and, you know, uh, come be the part of the pity party and, you know, Livestrong kind of softened that a little bit and built more of a masculine sports theme to this. But if you weren't a sports guy, you didn't really associate with it. What was needed in cancer was, was to be less polite. And I'm not going to be polite. I'm going to be the Howard Stern of, of, of healthcare of cancer. I'm going to call shit out. And you know what? Several million listens later, people take notice and they start to listen to things. So what I'm doing now at Offscript Media with my show out of patience, with our documentary, The Cancer Mavericks, we're not being polite. We're being respectful, but we're not being polite. And I feel like we've just gotten too soft-bellied. And this is just me being an aging, you know, a pre-coot, as my parents would call me, a pre-coot. You know, I'm, I'm 47. I'm, I'm, I'm hurtling towards 50 very gratefully. But if no one's going to stand up to the system and really be this ostentatious, precocious, rebellious voice, then we lose. We totally lose. And there is the me in social justice. There is the me in LGBTQ rights. There is the me in socioeconomic status. There's the me in the class warfare. But there's only me in healthcare, and I need more me's. So the call to action is let's get more angry me's bitching about how do we fix the shit that's broken when bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. That's community. And that's where someone's got to pave the path and say, Hey, this stuff, it might be difficult, but it's, it's doable, you know, and, and whether it's in a vertical or a channel or wherever it might be, that doesn't relate to you. You can use that experience and apply it. And that's where I think knowledge and, you know, reading in particular is just so valuable. Like you're saying this book disruption, you know, there is so many, lessons that we can take from it and apply to our own lives saying, oh, well, if this is how Coke thought about it. This is how bath tissue and toilet paper thought about it. How can we think about it for ourselves and the things that we care about, right? Because we all encounter this decision tree every single day of what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, kind of do what we're told or are we going to do what we want? You know, and I, I'm having this big dilemma right now. Am I going to do what I'm told or am I going to do what I want? And I'm do what I want. Obviously, anyone would answer that question that way but then who has the courage to do it, right? And that's the next step. And you know, you have been a vocal advocate for so many people because you had the courage to be different and stand up and you've inspired other people to do that within their own channels. And now we just gotta create this all-star lineup of people that are all really moving and shaking because that's what the world needs. But, um, but Matthew, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to learn and listen from um, you know, your earned experience and, uh, and to, to be an advocate in your corner for everything that you're, you're growing and doing. So just thank you for everything you're offering. It was an absolute pleasure to be on your show. And I just believe that purpose and curiosity go hand in hand. Thank you so much. There you have it. The outspoken Matthew Zachary. I wasn't kidding when I said that he tells it how it is. I learned a lot in this interview, and I hope you did too. We touched on social media and how it allows for confirmation bias to exist at scale and by default. We talked about Matthew's cancer diagnosis, some of the tough decisions he had to make, and how his life has changed because of it. 
We also talked about the value of curiosity and the purpose of disruption. If Matthew's story and work resonated with you, then check him out at www.matthewzachary.com. He's up to a lot of incredible stuff, and we only scratched the surface of it. Now give yourself a pat on the back because you just invested time in your self-growth. You're in the 1% and your future is bright. If there's anything I can do to support, you're looking to get into better habits, set more fair expectations, overcome self-doubt, or generate more self-confidence, send me an email and I'd love to chat with you about it. Selfimprovementdailytips at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.